Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 5. The Great Divorce, Chapter 3, Landing in Heaven. Friends, welcome back to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity, and most importantly, sharing this journey with you all. We're currently in season two in unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Matt, and I'm joined by my dear friend David, whose light is so bright and substantial when it shines on me. It reveals how transparent I still am. <laughs> no, mate, you got to turn down the brightness on your monitor. <laughs> well played. That must be what it is. <laughs> uh, are you drinking this week? Ah, uh, just having some Lacroix. Uh, excuse me. What are you drinking? La Croix. That's better. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Well, since I didn't have a lodger drink all of my alcohol, I'm carrying on with the Glenmorangie today, and I'm actually drinking my favourite one of this multi-pack. It's the Quinta Reuben, and it's just delicious. It looks fantastic. It's got a really lovely coloration, and oh, the smell is delightful. <laughs> Not that I'm rubbing your face in it or anything. <laughs> yeah, no. This, this, this LaCroix... You know, it's got a peach pear tint to the can. Uh, it's just got this nice bubble to it. Really goes down the throat smoothly. Lovely, lovely. Mm. Uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, Matt is currently punishing himself by going through Exodus 90. So if anyone else out there is currently fasting, please send him a message of encouragement. Because he's not going to get it from me. Yeah, that's exactly right. Hopefully one of these weeks we'll get drinking back on a, on a Sunday or something. Yeah, or Saturday, you know, I'll be able to have something. But what's the quote of the week, David? Okay. The quotation this week comes from Lewis's description of heaven in The Great Divorce. He alights from the bus and says, The light and coolness that drench me were like those of summer morning, early morning, a minute or two before the sunrise. I had the sense of being in a larger space. I got out in some sense, which made the solar system itself seem like an indoor affair. I like that. My favorite part about that, just the word drenched. That's a great word. <laughs> I know you shouldn't really cheers with water, but cheers. Cheers. All right, so you have to tell us about your interview with Patty Callahan. Ah, so this is when I interviewed the author of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. The episode actually should be out by the time this one's released, but we had such a fun conversation. We chatted for about an hour, and I did think about trying to edit it down, but I just thought it was all so great that I'm just going to publish the whole thing. We need to make a goal of ours to have an episode that you just never edit. <laughs> that seems like a terrible idea. It'd be something to strive for. Could you imagine just going for it? Mm, no, it'd be really bad. <laughs> you already hate hearing your voice. You'd probably hate hearing all the mess-ups and stuff that happen. Exactly. And speaking of podcasts, this week I've really been enjoying the Abiding Together podcast. It's hosted by Sister Miriam, who I've met and is wonderful, and two laywomen called Michelle and Heather. And they've been discussing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And whoever runs their Twitter account sent me a lovely message saying that they had listened to our own episode on that book. 
I didn't even know that existed. That's fantastic. Clearly, you don't follow our podcast on social media. Otherwise, you'd have seen my tweet. (laughs) Social media and me. uh, There's not much of a history there. Listeners probably all know you do all of that. (laughs) We also received an email from a listener, Luke, and he wrote, I'd like to thank you for your podcast. I'd only ever previously read The Great Divorce and the first three books of Narnia by publication order. (laughs) I love the fact that he points that out. (laughs) You're doing well. He says, your podcast inspired me to read Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters, God in the Dock, and I'm currently through most of the C.S. Lewis essay collection and other short pieces. He is now my favorite author. Good choice. I've also read through Francis Chang's Crazy Love because of your recommendation and looking to get into some Chesterton as well. He then shares a little bit of his personal spiritual journey, and he ends by saying, As much as you enjoy the subject matter, I'm sure there are times when it becomes tedious and difficult, and I appreciate all you do. So, in closing, thank you. Well, thank you, Luke. That was really kind of you to say, and encouraging. Oh, that was beautiful. I love reading those. And listeners, we love when you send them in. He's probably surpassing me in the amount of Lewis works he's read. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to have to step up your game. I am. You know, one thing I got that was fantastic was uh, I used the free trial of Audible to download it because it's quite pricey normally. But it's 40 hours of C.S. Lewis's essays. I think that's the same collection that Luke has. I have it too. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? I haven't actually started it yet. I recently went on a bit of a spending binge on Audible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. I'd recommend it to anyone. It's fun because the one of the reviewers was very kind to point at the exact time of all of the topics of the essays, like an index. And so you can just pick and choose a topic. And there's some really interesting ones where Lewis just wrote about and you can you can listen to it. And in other C.S. Lewis internet related news, there was a really great topic raised on the C.S. Lewis Reddit page. The person who started the thread said, if you had a one-hour lunch with Lewis, and he starts with, so what would you like to chat about? How would you respond? That's a great question. (laughs) Right? Now, I didn't respond immediately, but the original poster, I think his name was Alan, he actually tagged me and asked me how I would respond. Needless to say, I post on the C.S. Lewis Reddit group far too often. Topic number one. Were the Narnian Chronicles based on the Seven Heavens? This is the theory put forward by Dr. Michael Ward, and I think it's got a lot to commend itself, but I would like Lewis's confirmation. Topic number two, his relationship with Joy Davidman. I spoke about this with Paddy Callahan, but I would like to know more about the how and why he fell in love with her. Topic number three, I would like to hear all of his opinions on all of the controversial issues which he refused to discuss in mere Christianity. <laughs> Topic number four, speaking of controversial, I would like to talk to him more about Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Next month, I'm going to be interviewing Joseph Pierce about this very subject. So if I had lunch with Lewis, I would definitely want to talk about that. And the final topic, I'd just like to hear more about his mystical experiences. He describes them briefly in Surprised by Joy, but I'd like to hear more about them and find out if there were any others. But yeah, if we had lunch together, those are the sort of things I'd like to talk about. What about you? 
I'd, I'd first ask him a lot of what you did. I agree. Those would be super interesting. So I'd probably piggyback off those. But one is I'd be curious what was the most influential th- thing that he had read, particularly on Christian theology. And what I mean is when I read about theosis and mere Christianity, it transformed the way I thought about Christ- the Christian journey. And did he ever have a book like that that was so transformational that it just changed the, the framework that he viewed Christianity through? My guess is that he would say either Fantasties by George MacDonald or The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. Actually, now I think about it, I seem to recall, I think it was the Christian Century, there was some newspaper or magazine that actually interviewed Lewis and asked him this question, what were the books which most influenced him? I'll dig it out and I'll put a link in the show notes. Oh, please do. I bet the listeners would love that. You should tweet that as well. <laughs> I will also tweet that. <laughs> but the final thing I'd be, I'd genuinely be curious about is less, less the theology stuff. I'd almost ask him just some life advice because I think through when I was making some of these bigger decisions and I've done a lot career-wise to advance what I hope and believe is a calling. I've left a lot of friends behind. Uh, into in, different locations for work. And I remember, forget, he has a quote that says, and I'm paraphrasing, but if I had to give some advice to a young man, I would tell him the one thing, never leave your friends. Like, be super close. So something like that, where it's like, all right, but let me explain my situation. Is it worth it? Is is this trade-off in, in stuff, in, in things along those lines? I can categorically tell you what Lewis would have said. He would have said, Matt... Do not, under any circumstances, leave David alone in San Diego. (laughs) Stay with him. He needs you. (laughs) That's a good one. For those listeners who are unaware, Matt used to live here in San Diego. But this past summer, he abandoned me and moved to the other side of the country to New York City. It's a good thing I'm not bitter. (laughs) But the quotation that you're referring to, it was in a letter that he wrote to his lifelong pen pal, Arthur Greaves. He said, if I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. A few weeks ago, I produced a graphic for this quotation on our Instagram account. Oh, perfect. What? Now that we're done with the chit chat, let's jump into summary. The bus climbs over a cliff and lands. The passengers push and shove to get out. The light and coolness drenches Lewis like a summer morning before sunrise. The space feels gigantic, giving him a sense of freedom, but also of danger. His fellow passengers are almost transparent, and the grass does not bend under their feet. It appears that this land is made of some different denser substance, such that men were ghosts by comparison. In response, one ghost runs back into the bus, screaming. The driver tells them that they can stay as long as they please. A respectable ghost comments that he left the gray town to get away from this riffraff. Jack sees bright people coming to meet them, ageless, some naked and some robed, with the grass bending under their feet. Two more ghosts run screaming to the bus. The remaining phantoms huddle close together. So chapter three focuses on the final parts of the bus ride away from the Greytown and then the initial impressions of the new place after the landing. And we're going to find out that they've landed in heaven. Yes. In starting with that final part of the journey, 
Lewis notices that they were climbing an incredible cliff that sank vertically beneath them so far that he could not see the bottom. And eventually the top became visible like a thin line of emerald green. And as I was reading that, that thin line of emerald green, just using that term, I was thinking, wow, I just pictured this incredible lush vegetation. And living in San Diego, you miss that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, but it also stands in stark contrast to the place that they've just left. Yes, great connection. The description reminds me a little bit of what it's like when I go and visit England. After San Diego, England just seems so green. Don't get me wrong, San Diego is still paradise, but the contrast is marked. It's just so lush. It does, and I actually picture the gardens in Oxford. They're stunning. I mean, they are truly beautiful. If, if someone ever went to a trip to Oxford, I'd tell them to tr- check out probably the 10, 15 best gardens. And you can look those up and, and go to some of the colleges. They're, they're unreal. But that picture, that picture of climbing the mountain, I thought there was a lot in that right away. So going from the grade town to the beginning of heaven, it's, he describes it as like climbing a mountain. But what I thought was interesting is notice that all they had to do to make that ascent was get into the bus. And then a lot of the work was done for them. And so I don't know if Lewis meant anything by that or if I'm reading way too much into that, but I thought that was intriguing. I think it's a good point. You only have to look in the Bible to see how important mountains are. They're the site of all the major covenants. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, they all take place on mountains. And even in Jesus' ministry, you have the Sermon on the Mount. He dies on Mount Calvary. There's definitely something significant about mountains. Yeah, that's a, I didn't even think of that either. And it's probably worth pointing out that here in the Great Divorce, even once they've arrived in heaven, there's still another mountain for them to climb. Yes. You're more familiar with this and you've read Dante's. This, was, he, was this influenced by Dante's Purgatorio? Oh yeah. In the Inferno, Dante, he descends through the different levels of hell. And then in Purgatorio and Paradiso, he's then ascending upwards again through these different levels. And actually that reminds me, one of our listeners, Katie, she sent me a link to a webpage. It's an interactive tour of Dante's Inferno, Dante's Hell. So thanks for that, Katie. I'll be sure to include it in the show notes for this episode. So upon exiting the bus, I love this. So we all remember when they entered the bus, <laughs> that they all had the problems. Then we remember those quarreling on the bus ride. So you would expect there to be a nice little commotion on the exit. And so sure enough, there was. He says everyone's jumped up and there was curses, taunts and blows. But the funny thing is that after most of them have got out, they don't go anywhere. They just huddle by the bus. Yeah, I wonder why they fight to get out. Like, why they're in such a hurry? I'd say they're just full of pride. They're competitive. They think everything is a zero-sum game, that if someone else gets something, then I don't. If I don't get out first, then somebody else might get some benefit that I'll be without. But Lewis didn't join in the ruckus, and so he remained on the bus. And as he remained in the bus, once the door was open, he said... There came in the fresh stillness, the singing of a lark. Outside of the word drenched, I would say that sentence stuck out to me very much. I definitely say that in this chapter, we see that Lewis is a real master at describing environment and atmosphere. Oh, he does an unreal job with this. And I was thinking there, when he says the fresh stillness, 
I was thinking of First Kings 19, uh, the, the Hebrew word sowed. So there was the earthquake, there was the thunder, I think, and God wasn't in any of those, but he was in that stillness, that, that silence, that solitude. And so I think of that when he uses the word that fresh stillness. Ah, yes. You're referring to Elijah's encounter with God in that still, small voice, which incidentally happens on another mountain, Mount Horeb. Ah, it's coming full circle here. I'm liking these connections. What did you think, though, when you, when he described, when he, some of you, out of curiosity, when you, these initial impressions, did you have a place that it came to your mind? Like, I thought of this play on Golden Pond, the movie. I just love that scene with the, the loons and, the, and they're setting the stage of this gorgeous pond uh, with this cabin. I mean, what were you thinking of? Uh, I was mainly thinking about those times when I get up really, really early before sunrise and everything's still and I just have some time to myself. Mm. It almost feels like you're being let into a secret. You know that the sun is going to rise. You know it's going to be a busy day full of hustle and bustle. But before all of that happens, you just have this stillness and you get to spend that time with God. That time of intimacy. I think that's why I call it. It's like you're being let into a secret. Nice choice of words. Did you say there's like a little secret? Yeah. Say, yeah, that was, that was beautiful. But what did you think about the description of heaven? We're told that it's going to be sunrise, which is clearly contrasted with the grey town, which is, it's going to be night. But what did you make of the description of the space? Lewis said, I had the sense of being in a larger space, perhaps even a larger sort of space than I'd ever known before, as if the sky were further off and the extent of the green plain wider than it could have been on this little ball of earth. I'd got out in some sense, which made the solar system itself seem like an indoor affair. I thought of a couple of things. The first short was Aslan, a little bit. That same dichotomy. He's got this, there's this excitement, this hope around Aslan, but there's also this fear. Right. I like where you went with that. My note against that section was, they've arrived in Aslan's country. And in the same way that he's not a tame lion, neither is his land. Oh, this is kind of fun. I actually never peruse through your notes before this. So <laughs> once you said I could lead this, I'm like, all right. <laughs> and I'm just going to go blind and let David interject. Um, the other thing, though, is I thought of my... This happens anytime you go to a new place for an extended period of time, but particularly Oxford. Just that excitement when you are in a new space. You know how you can be in a city in one location and it actually can become very small because you start, you, you get your places, you go to your community and you know these spots. But when you go to a new place, it feels very big, yeah, very vast because you know nothing. You don't know where anything, you don't even know where like a, a grocery store is. And so there's a bit of an uncertainty unknown to that, a bit of a fear, but then this excitement at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I did like when you talked about this vast space. I mean, that was, I started to get this sense of him describing in, in, in the first taste as a reader and the people on the journey of the infinite. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible way to describe that. The solar system, it feels like it's indoors relative to this. I mean, that was a good way of, of describing something that's well, impossible to describe. It's infinite. And I think it's similar to an experience that we have here on Earth when we climb a mountain or go into the desert or visit the Grand Canyon the space, the size, the magnitude, it all draws us out of ourselves. It makes us look up and out. You know, it raises our minds to God. 
Oh, that makes me think of, have you ever read St. Teresa of Avila, her interior castle? No, that's one of those books which scares me. Oh, I, it is interesting you say that. So it's this leadership retreat that I do uh, once a quarter, and it's one of the required readings we have. And interesting, obviously, she's a saint and from the Catholic faith, but it's, it's a significant amount of Protestants that recommended it to me. And they all said something similar, though. Be careful, get ready. Like, it's intense. <laughs> and so the very first stage in her castle is exactly what you described. This She calls it a self-awareness, but she means in a sense of like our humility, our smallness. And so this this made me think of that. It's the word which Americans, and I'm afraid Californians in particular, overuse. The word awesome. When we encounter something that's truly awesome, which inspires awe, it shows us our place in the grander scheme of things. Yes. You know, normally I think Galileo was wrong. The world revolves around me. But when I encounter something that is truly awesome, I can see that's not the case. You know, when you say it with your accent, it doesn't sound cheesy. (laughs) Thank you. Awesome. Like the way you say it sounds like awe. Like you genuinely say the awe where it's, as American, like awesome. awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But what's interesting is what we're seeing right now is this picture of a very substantial place. You know, that he talks about the drenching. He talks about the vastness of it. There's definitely a difference happening that seems to be substantial. And what's, what I found fascinating is once, you already mentioned this, but when they get out of the bus, they hesitate and they somewhat group together because there is this fear that's happening. And Lewis points out that he starts to notice that everyone is fully transparent. He, he realizes that they were in fact ghosts. And he goes so far to describe them, and I thought this was a great choice of words, man-shaped stains on the brightness of the air. <laughs> I put a note next to that saying, what a great insult that would make. You are a man-shaped stain on the landscape, sir. <laughs> I mean, think about that for a second. A stain is not supposed to be there. A stain is the thing screwing something up. And would, have you ever thought of describing a human as a stain? That's how <laughs> I subs- didn't before, but I do now and I will in the future. That's what the internet is for. <laughs> oh, that's so good. But not only does Lewis realize that the people on the bus are ghosts, he realizes that he too is a phantom and describes being able to see the grass through his feet. Yeah, that was unreal. Not only did he see it through his feet, just how it, it didn't bend under him. And so he described himself there in, in, in the next few sentences, bending over and trying to pluck a daisy. He couldn't do it. And then he, and he tried to lift up a leaf and he put everything he had into lifting that up. And he even said to the point where he broke his sweat and he couldn't do it. Like that's how substantial everything was. But what, what, what he realizes though, is what's in fact happening. Like he had this shift he realizes that it's the men are the same as they always were. They're the same as they were in a gray town. But he specifically, the reason they look less here than they did in a gray town was just because everything else was more substantial. It's not that they got less through the journey up. It's just everything else got more real. It's the power of the contrast. If you've ever thought you were, say, really good at something, I don't know, playing the piano, computer programming, math, whatever... And then you meet somebody who is better than you and significantly better than you. Yes. The contrast makes it look like you're just terrible. And you're not. It's just the contrast that makes it look that way. 
How would you react? So like one of the big ghosts that says shouts, I don't like this. And she runs back into the bus. How do you think you would have reacted? <laughs> well, the ghost actually says, it gives me the pip. Oh, you're right. I forgot about that. I had never heard of this before, so I had to look it up. It is the name of a poultry disease. And in this context, it means to feel depressed or irritated or out of sorts. Now, if I discovered that I was a ghost, I think it'd give me the pip as well. I mean, to discover that you weren't as substantial as you thought. I can't help but think that it would be like those moments in life when you realize you're not actually such a good person as you typically think you are. When you fail or see a darker side of your own personality. One thing that's probably worth saying is, when I read about Lewis's heaven, it reminds me of Plato and Augustine in the idea that we derive our very being from God. So when we turn away from him, when we turn inwards, that Latin phrase, incurvatus in se, when my soul is turned inwards, I don't become more real, but less real and less substantial. But in contrast, when I turn my gaze outwards towards my neighbour or towards God, well then I become more real and more substantial. And this is the heavenly landscape that Lewis is going to be walking through and he's going to be meeting people who are really substantial and it flows from their union with God. It's like in the final section of Mere Christianity. Lewis is addressing a concern that some people might have, a fear that if they become Christian, then they will just become another cookie-cutter Christian. They will lose all sense of personality. And he says, actually, the complete opposite will happen. When Christ comes and lives in you and through you, you will become more you than you've ever been. Because there is so much personality in Christ that it can't be fully expressed even with millions of Christians. And this substantial nature of heaven, it stands in stark contrast to what the fat, clean-shaven ghost was saying earlier. Remember I described him as a Gnostic? Oh yeah. Because he thought heavenly things were purely spiritual and that there was no material dimension at all. But now we have come to a heaven that is as hard as diamonds. It's more substantial than the grey town, not less. That's a great connection. But we should go through some of these reactions of these people as they've gotten off the bus. So I already described the first one where you had the ghost and she said, I don't like it. It's the pit. And she runs back in and and he never sees her again. Then you have the big man who goes back to the driver and asks him, you know, when do we need to be back? And the driver says, you don't have to come back if you don't want to. Uh, it's, it's, It's whenever you can stay here forever. And I thought that was interesting, too. You have to continue saying yes. At any point, they can turn around. At any point, they can say no. So they've already said yes once. To, to begin this process, but they, they have to freely assent to it uh, to keep staying there and allowing this process to continue. We talk so much about grace, but I like how, is it Augustine or Aquinas that writes about cooperating grace too? Like a, you, you have the initial grace in our journey uh, that God provides us, but then there's still that cooperating grace of constantly ascending. And so this specifically reminded me of that. Now, some listeners might find this idea shocking, that Not only can the residents of hell visit heaven, but according to this, they can actually also stay there. Now, if this is you, just remember what Lewis said in the preface. This is fiction. 
This is an imaginative supposal. He's using this story to teach us something. What did you think of the quieter, more respectable ghost reaction? Well, like the tousle-headed poet, this guy also thinks that most of the people on the bus aren't going to enjoy heaven and think that they'd be much better off if they just went back home. (laughs) And given their reaction to the landscape thus far, that doesn't actually seem that unreasonable. Yeah. He says something quite funny. He says, they don't even know what to do. And Lewis admits that, well, he doesn't really know what to do either. He says that, well, he's expected and he will be met soon. Although he doesn't tell us by whom. There were a couple questions I'm curious uh, on that from you. But the first one is, what did you make of his comment that they would be happier at home? I think it's mostly just retreading the material from the tousle-headed poet. He doesn't hold the other passengers in very high esteem and thinks that they would just be happier at home with fish and chips and adverts, that they won't be able to appreciate this land. I mean, he interprets their initial discomfort with this new land as a sign that they don't actually belong here. And we're going to find out later that's not true. All it shows is that they still have a journey to go on and they're still growing for them to do. Much in the same way that the early days of the Christian journey, (laughs) and even the later days of the Christian journey, can be rather difficult. That doesn't show that this isn't the right thing to do. It just shows that there's a journey to go on. We're still growing. It challenged me because how often have I found things to be incredibly beautiful? And you want to share it, but then you think, ah, they're not going to enjoy it. Like, well, you bring someone to church. Ah, you know what? They, they're, they're, they'd be happier not coming. And, and it's a terrible mindset, but you're, it's, it's more out of a fear, actually. You're, I'm afraid of being rejected. You, know, you share something you find so beautiful. But that's, that's a thought that I say sometimes, or I bring them to Mass, ah, they're not going to enjoy it. Did you, do you think that comment means he had come here before? If he says he was expected? or mm, No, I, I think he's just full of pride. He thinks of himself as someone important. Yeah. And if you're important, well, then you expect to be met. Yeah, I like that. But yeah, he's not a fan, really, of anyone else that's on the bus. He calls them trippers, day trippers, crowding up the place. They'll be here just for today, but he's convinced that he's going to stay here. And after a little while, he wanders off. He's, he's, clearly, he's got the wrong mindset for entering into heaven. Probably not the best. <laughs> he's not off to a good start. No. But th- there's second chances, right? Right. <laughs> but then as Lewis is, is looking off into the distance, he notices, as David, you alluded to in the beginning, there's still, they've ascended this mountain, but there's still a mountain that they need to ascend. So he notices range of mountains in the distance. And he also mentions a knot of phantoms in the foreground suggesting that there's much more to this journey than just going to the bus. I mean, that was getting on, yes, brought him there, but they have, they've got more to go. And we're going to see that, obviously, as the chapters unfold. But he, he points out that the height of the mountain was so enormous that his waking sight could not have taken in such an object at all. Just continuing to emphasize that infinite, that vastness, it's just beyond our comprehension what heaven is going to be like. And there's, there's definitely this, this opposite feel from the Greytown, because Lewis makes this comment, there was no change or progression as the hours passed. The promise, or the threat, 
of the sunrise rested immovably up there. What did you think of that? What did you make of that? Well, I've read the rest of the book, so I know this is going to come in later. (laughs) I think for me, there's that sense of anticipation. Going back to your very first question in this episode, how all this makes me feel. And I said the early morning, when you're enjoying that nice cup of tea, waiting for the sun to rise, you know the day is going to have so much in store. It can be exciting things, scary things. But either way, there's that sense of anticipation. Now, as, as the chapter is coming to an end, he sees these bright, radiant people coming in the distance. He describes the earth as shaking under their feet and their feet sinking into the turf. They crush the grass. The dew was scattered. It's the complete opposite of the transparent ghosts. Yeah, these are residents of heaven. Lewis calls them bright spirits and solid people. And I'm sure more than once you and I are going to call them saints because <laughs> that's what they are. Yeah. But I, I thought what was fascinating about this is by drawing such a stark contrast, he's making it very clear what kind of transformation has to happen. This goes back to mere Christianity. This isn't give him part of you. This isn't, you know, God fix this and that. You know, the dentist, when he's going to fix a tooth, he's going to clean everything. And if he finds more, he's going to pull it out and replace or do whatever he needs. I mean, it's that same concept here is being painted through these characters. I mean, you're not just going to be a slightly darker ghost. Yeah, you're going to be transformed, made fully substantial. You remember what Lewis said when he quoted St. Athanasius in Mere Christianity? The Son of God became man so that men could become sons of God. Well, (laughs) these passengers on the bus, they're about to be met by some sons of God. Lewis describes some of them as being naked and some of them as being robed. I was trying to think why he describes them in this way. And I was thinking about the function that clothes serve here on Earth. It's for protection from the elements and also to cover up our nakedness. And interestingly, when you dig into the fathers and read what they have to say about the fall of man, they talk about the resulting nakedness, that Adam and his descendants would no longer be clothed with grace. They sewed for themselves garments of leaves, and then were given skins. Either way, there was a covering up that took place as a result of the fall, But these bright spirits have been redeemed. They are now clothed with grace. And I suppose you could say it's manifested either in the purity of their naked form or in the glory of their clothes, which Lewis describes as being almost part of their own bodies. It's almost like we've gone back to the garden, back to Adam and Eve before the fall, when they were naked and unashamed. That was very well said. (laughs) What did you think about the agelessness of these bright spirits? Lewis says that some have beards and some are clean-shaven, but they're all ageless. By the way, I was really excited for you in this, because it means in heaven you might be able to actually grow a beard. No, I've already resigned myself that that's just never going to happen. I've accepted it. Like the serenity prayer, you know, accept the things I can't change. That's what I can. (laughs) First, I had a hard time wrapping my head around it. I'll start with that. I mean, I I just can't, they have to look like something. Hmm. Uh, But then I started to realize he was more talking about, at least through his analogy, that you just don't notice the age because there's something so much more to it. Like age and and 
to us, we have all these things that define people, their age, their height, their, their, the clothes they wear, their, their, what they look like. I mean, we have all these stereotypes. We start thinking through stuff. We start making ideas. But here you're just such a real person that age no longer matters, I guess. I mean, maybe that's my first thought. For me, it was Lewis's comment that sometimes you catch glimpses of this here on Earth, which put me in mind of... Have you ever met someone who spends a lot of their day in prayer? In my own life, I can think of a few monks and nuns who just kind of glow a little bit. They have a wisdom that you typically attribute with very old age, but they also have a beauty and radiance to them, which you would typically disassociate with youth. So what I think Lois is trying to do here is draw these two ideas together and say that this is what the saints in heaven are going to be like because of their proximity to God. I like how I give my my thought that just comes to my head, and then you you give the answer. I'm like, yeah, that was a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) As the chapter ends, and the right people are coming, he says, they came on steadily. I did not entirely like it. Two of the ghosts screamed and ran for the bus. The rest of us huddled close to one another. Well, you and I have spoken before about how holiness can be intimidating and make us feel unsettled. It seems to be a more extreme version of that. The passengers on the bus realize they're ghosts, and they are now being tracked down by those who are far more substantial than they are. I can see why they would be intimidated. Yeah, doesn't it it say in the New Testament that the, the darkness hates the light? It's kind of that idea here. It exposes it. Well, that was the bell, which means we've probably got time for just one quick round before we've got to go home. But I think we're now nicely set up for the next chapter. But, you know, the best part about this new format, you come to the end of the chapter, you think you're done with all the goodies, and David's got the haikus. Okay, I wrote quite a few. (laughs) So I wrote a couple for heaven. Here's the first one. Light. Cool. Dangerous. More spacious than the heavens. What is this strange place? Do you like the little play there on heavens? (laughs) Solar system. It just took up way too many syllables. (laughs) The next one. Foothills of heaven, with daisies tough like iron, ground hard as diamonds. It's a good one. Actually, like, your first one's great. Next up, I have a haiku for the phantoms. We are ghostly folk. Man-shaped stains on the landscape. We are filled with dread. And lastly, my haiku for the spirits. Ageless, beautiful, earth shaking under their feet, bright spirits approach. So those were all my haikus, but a listener wrote us one. Giovanna wrote us a haiku which describes the overall journey which these bus passengers will need to go on. She's crushing it. Free will is a choice. Will we become real people? Or will we stay ghosts? I think that haiku works for the entire book. So yes, listeners, send us more haikus. Of course, what we're really excited about is when Matt will finally offer us a haiku. (laughs) I need to be mentally prepared for this. 
Well, if you're doing Exodus 90, if that doesn't prepare you, I don't know what will. Oh, great call. This will be my Easter gift. (laughs) But listeners, we want to encourage you again, iTunes reviews, rate us. We would love for you guys to make your way over to the YouTube channel. Our subscribers are meaningfully lower than the podcast. And so we need you guys to, to make your way over there and click that button. Anything else, David? Just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack. Visit the website, pintswithjack.com. And we'll be back next week when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.